Welcome to the All-American Chapel Protestant Service Podcast. During this week's sermon, Chaplain Andy Anderson preaches from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Good morning. A research group from Duke University recently conducted a study with local schools to determine how students learn in different environments. One teacher was, as a part of this study, one teacher was told she would be given two groups of students. One group, below average and behind. The other group, advanced. And the research team would sit in on her classes and they would watch her teach. Now, it became apparent very quickly that the teacher did not have a whole lot of enthusiasm for teaching the group that was behind. She didn't have a lot of smiles on her faces. Her demeanor was unpleasant. Her patience was very much lacking. She wasn't really engaged. But with the advanced students, her personality totally changed. She greeted her class every day with a smile. Her enthusiasm bubbled. Her passion for teaching overflowed. What the teacher did not know was that both students were advanced students, both groups. What am I getting at here? Perception matters. Perception is powerful. Our actions, our attitudes, everything about us is determined by how we perceive things to be. And nothing in life could be more important than how we perceive God. Could you say amen to that? Nothing could be more important than how we view God. How we perceive God, of course, is based on what we think we know about Him, our source of information. But just like that teacher, if we are not careful, we can get some bad information and our perception about God can be wrong, totally wrong. No doubt you've experienced this at some point in your life. Well, I think God is pleased with me. You know, I attend church. I throw a little money in the plate every once in a while. I think he's happy. If that were true, God would be a cheap date. We know that's not true when we read the scriptures. Our God is in the heavens. He does what? All that he pleases. So you see, at some point we've gotten some bad information and we've of course created this God of our own imagination the one that fits well with us that fits well with our lifestyle but when we read the Bible we know that that's not who God is ever so it's important that we get the right information about God if we're going to see him for who he is and this is John's concern in his gospel I want you to have the right information up front so that as you're reading through this gospel, you will know who God is. And he wants us to have this abundant life in Christ now, and so therefore he points us to Jesus. 
And what does he tell us from the beginning? What does he tell us from the opening verses? What is the most important information that we can have in our life to have this abundant life? And he tells us this, to know Christ is to know God because Jesus is God. To know Christ is to know God because Jesus himself is God. If you see Jesus this way, you can know accurately who God is. So this is John's concern. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Go with me there now. Are you there? Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as only of the begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he, I'm sorry, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Well, we are almost certain that John's gospel was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometime towards the end of the first century, 85, 90, somewhere in there. And a lot had been taking place in the church in the 50 years after Jesus had went to heaven. The church had rapidly expanded into the Mediterranean world. We get that story in the book of Acts. We get that from some of Paul's letters. A lot was happening in and around Jerusalem. In 66 AD, believe it or not, the Jewish people revolted against the Romans. And it's most likely that Jews and Jewish Christians fought side by side to defend the city. But four years later, in 70 AD, something tragic happened in Jerusalem that affected the writing of this book. The temple, the very heart of Judaism, was destroyed by the Roman general Titus. As you can imagine, it was like a dagger in the spiritual hearts of the Jews and the Jewish Christians. For the Jew, this was the place where God resided. For the Jewish Christian, this is the place where they could now worship the Father in spirit and in truth through Jesus. 
Now, it's very important that we get this from the beginning. The Jewish people firmly believed that authentic worship took place where? In the temple. In the temple. In fact, you could say that they almost elevated the temple above God. That's how important the temple was in their theology. So to say that they relied on the temple for worship was an understatement. But for Jewish Christians, things were really not that different. They started worshiping in homes, as we know, in the book of Acts. But the reason they worshiped in homes, why? Because they got kicked out of the temple. They wanted to be in the temple worshiping God through Christ. And so they weren't seeking this break from Judaism. Sometimes we think they were saying to those Jews in the temple, this is what true Judaism looks like, Jesus, right? So the temple was very much a part of their worship. Now, knowing this about both groups, both the Jews and the Jewish Christians that John is writing to who are familiar with Judaism, he's answering the question, Now that the temple has been destroyed, what now? What happens? What do we do? What do we do? And John's answer is simple. Jesus. Jesus. To the Jew, you look for God in the temple. To the Gentile, you look for God wherever you look for him. Both of you don't have to look any further than Jesus himself because he is God. And so in our text last week, Chaplain Grady told us that the signs in John's gospel point the way to Christ, to eternal life. That was John's purpose in writing the whole gospel. Well, this week, John is going to tell us why we should believe in Jesus. Simply, John is going to tell us who Jesus is so the reader can know up front, this is no ordinary man. This is no religious teacher. This is no ordinary Jew or some spiritual leader. If you ascribe any of those things to Jesus alone, then you're seeing him wrong. He is those things, but he's so much more. He is God. So today, in verses 1 through 18, he's going to answer this question regarding Jesus' identity. And the very first thing he says in verses 1 through 5, look down there in your Bible. The very first thing he tells us is Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You, me, the plants, trees, everything, nothing came into being apart from him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, John's audience is an audience that's very familiar with Judaism, and what would make sense here to that audience is a genealogy. How does Matthew... And how does Luke start? What do they start with? Genealogy, right? This is the line of Jesus. This is where he came from. Nope. Instead, John begins firmly placing Jesus in eternity. 
in the same way that Moses started the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In similar fashion, John starts his gospel with the majesty and the deity of Christ. In the beginning, they're hearing the echo of Moses as he's speaking. In the beginning, how many times did those Jews say those words? In the beginning. And now, John is placing Jesus right there in the beginning. But what about this concept of the word? Believe it or not, this is the only place in the gospel where this concept is used in this way. For the Jews, the word was the idea of wisdom. It was a concept that wisdom is accompanying God as he's creating and speaking and doing. Okay, That's how the Jew understood the word logos. The Greek understood the word logos to be this idea of ultimate wisdom, not necessarily divine, but this idea that there is a wisdom that is above everything that is in some way absolute truth. In both cases, the word is a concept. Hear me now. John is saying the word is not a concept. He is a person. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. John wants his audience to know up front to believe in the word. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God. But he doesn't stop there. He tells us not only is Jesus God, but Jesus is God with us. Look at verse 14. Look down at verse 14. I'm going to just pause right here. There's 18 verses here. You could preach a sermon on every single verse. Y'all know that, right? <laughs> okay. We're, gonna, we're going with the concept right now. We're going to stay with the flow of the word. Okay, so keep that in your mind. Okay. Verse 14. He says, Jesus is God with us. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John here in verse 14 is connecting us back to verse 1, to this idea of the logos, the word as the title for Jesus in this gospel. He says the word who was in the beginning with God, the word who was God, the word who created everything that has come into being, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, what I want you to notice John does not say here is Jesus lived among us. There's a reason there's a distinction. It sounds like he's saying he lived with us, right? That's kind of what you think about. Okay, yep, he's here. But that's not what John is saying. Instead, he uses a unique word to describe the way in which Jesus dwelt among us. And the word that he uses is actually the word tabernacled. Or he pitched a tent among us. Now, again, audience matters. It's the same word that the Old Testament uses for the word tabernacle in the desert with God's people. 
So here John is saying, in the same way God dwelt with the people of Israel in the wilderness, Jesus has come to dwell with us in our midst. In the same way that God was with the children of Israel in the wilderness, Jesus has come to dwell with the church and the world. In the same way the sacrifices were offered at the tabernacle, Jesus is our sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 speak to Christ tenting with us and giving us access to the Father through his blood. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has tabernacled with us. He has sacrificed himself for us. This is more than Jesus just living with us. This is God putting on flesh and dying in our place. A great theologian of our time has said, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. That God would become man. So John wants us to know Jesus is God. But he's not a God who's far removed. No. Jesus is God with us. That's great news, amen? This is all wonderful news. The right information is the best news, amen? So John is telling us this person we're about to read about in the gospel is God and God with us. But notice what he says in 15 through 18. I'm sorry, verses 17 through 18. He says, Jesus reveals God to us. I want to say that again. Jesus reveals God to us. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So why does John introduce the law and Moses here? Well, it's most likely that Exodus chapters 33 and 34 are the backdrop for this portion of the text. And remember, he's writing to, to people who are very familiar with Judaism, okay? But in Exodus 33 and 34, this is when God summons Moses to Mount Sinai, and he has to reissue the law to Moses. You remember what Moses did? Came down the mountain, got upset, broke those bad boys, right? And God had to call him back up, give them to him again, okay? 
And it was at this time that Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God said, what? No, absolutely not. If you see me, you die. But this is where we learn through those, the law and the commandments that our God is a God of grace and truth. And we don't necessarily think about that when we think about the law, do we? We think about strict, rigid law. Law. Police, slow down. Law, right? But Exodus 34, 7 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, in faithfulness. So if this is the backdrop of these verses, then John is saying, as great as the law and Moses were, the one who now is grace and truth has come to dwell with us. As great as that law was that Moses came down and delivered to those people, as great as that word was that Moses came down and delivered to those people, Jesus is that word. Jesus is grace and truth. Text, one theologian said, so John is saying, if you thought God's gift of the law through Moses was a great thing, and of course it was, he has given us an exponentially greater gift now through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. But he goes on, look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, uh, a, the way to translate that only begotten because it's a little confusing sometimes, is the unique, the no one else like. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now this verse kind of comes out of nowhere. John is talking about the law and grace. And then all of a sudden, he concludes his opening statements regarding the identity of Jesus by reminding us that nobody's ever seen God. And at first glance, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Well, I'd offer you two reasons why John ends this way. First, if Exodus 33 and 34 are the backdrop here, when Moses asks to see God's glory, God responds with a firm no. Nobody gets to see me. You die if you see me. Okay? Second, verse 18 wraps up the prologue by connecting you back to verse 1. We cannot know the invisible God unless he reveals himself to us, which he has done in Jesus. So John is telling us here, Jesus, the word, who is the only son of God, the one who was with God in verse 1, who is in the bosom of the Father in verse 18, he has revealed God to us. To see Jesus is to see God. Now at this point, I'm sure that many of John's readers protested. I know who God is though, see, I already know. He's in the temple. He's in the heavens. But God's word teaches us here we cannot accurately know who God is unless we look at Jesus. Because he is the only one in all of creation that can reveal God to us. 
He says, Jesus shows us the Father. Jesus reminds Philip of this. You probably remember this verse. In John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, because they said, we want to see the Father, you know. And he said, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He says, he who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. So John is preparing us for what comes next. Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God revealing himself to the world. Yes, God spoke in the past through his word, but he has now given us his final word in Jesus. So if we're going to understand what it means to have this abundant life, that Chaplain Grady talked so much about last Sunday, we must understand that we cannot live this abundant life, the life of faith that God wants us to live, unless we are looking squarely at Jesus the right way, believing the right thing about him. Remember, those Jews were asking, what now? Temple's gone. Close it down, it's over. John says, you don't have to look any further. You just look right at Jesus. Jesus is God, and he will reveal the Father to everyone who believes in him. So the question this morning that you and I are faced with is the exact same question that John's original audience had to answer. Who do you believe Jesus is? If you do any kind of research about what people think about Jesus, people who attend Baptist churches, people who attend Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches and Anglican churches, and you poll those people and you find out that less than 40% of those attendees believe that Jesus is God and is the only way to heaven. So it would be foolish of me to believe that everyone sitting in this place right now believes Jesus is God. So who do you believe Jesus is? How do you see him? Think for a moment back to the beginning about that teacher who had the wrong information about those students. Think about how it affected her actions and her outlook. Maybe you've gotten some wrong information about Jesus. Is he just a prophet? Is he just a teacher? Is he just some religious fanatic? The way you see him determines what you believe about him. So for those of you who've already read the story, right? So for those of you who confess that Jesus is Lord and who have come to faith in Christ, I think that the challenge for us today is acting on what we believe. You say, I believe Jesus is God. Do you? Do your actions agree with that statement? Are you living the abundant life of Christ that Chaplain Grady talked so much about last week? Do you really believe that Jesus is God and has revealed to you what obedience and faith looks like? If the flies on your wall could talk, 
would they agree that, that's, that you believe that statement? That Jesus is God? Would, they, would any of us walk away if we watched you interact with your family agreeing that you believe that? And I'm not talking to anyone specifically in here in the family. I'm just saying to everyone, the challenge for us is if we believe that Jesus is God, it should impact the way that we are living our lives. Amen? So today maybe this is a wake-up call for you. A reminder that the person you so often pray to is not a saint. He's not just a good guy. He is the God of the universe. For those of you who may have not read the story, or who have read it, but have not come to faith in Christ, well, you're faced with the same question. Who is Jesus? How do you see him? You say, you know, chaplain, I'm just having a hard time believing that Jesus is really God. I want to encourage you to go to the Gospel of John yourself. We're going to be preaching on it in here for the next, a lot of weeks, <laughs> probably about 14 weeks. I hope that you're excited about that. I know I am. Don't wait on us. Don't just wait on, don't come in here week by week and, and think, okay, they'll give me the answer. Go yourself. Go to the gospel yourself. You can read it in a few hours if you'd like. And you can see through Jesus' words and his deeds that he truly is God. So if you're interested in this abundant life that we're going to be talking about, I would encourage you not only to read John for yourself, but to be present over the next few months. But maybe today God's done something amazing in your life. Maybe through this boring preacher today, you started to believe that. Amen? Maybe today God spoke to your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and you said for the first time today, yes, I do believe. I do believe that Jesus is God. And I want to make that profession of faith. I want to trust in Christ. Well, in a moment, as the music starts to play, Holly, you can come on up now. As the music starts to play, whether you're challenged today with the fact that you believe that, but your actions have not matched up with what you say you believe, we're going to give you an opportunity to come forward and to spend a little time praying, asking God to forgive you and to continue to reveal himself to you so that you will know what that abundant life looks like, okay? Secondly, if God's done something amazing in your heart today, we want you to come forward. I'll be down here. There's other chaplains sitting down front. If you'd like to talk to us about what faith in Christ looks like, about what this abundant life looks like, come forward. We're not going to put you on the spot. We're not going to embarrass you. We'll, we'll take you. We'll, have, we'll talk. You'll, I promise. It'll be good, okay? Act today. Act on what you believe. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that you are a God who is gracious and merciful 
are a God who shows us who you are through your Son. And today, all of us, for the most part, are here because you've revealed that truth to us, that Jesus is God. And so today, Father, we say thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son so that we can know who you are. We pray, Father, that our actions, that our words would be a reflection of that belief. That in our homes, that in our workplace, God, that truth, that Jesus is God, would be firmly stamped on our hearts. And we would act accordingly in faith every day. And God, for those who are here today that you have revealed yourself for the first time to, through your Son, through the preaching of your Word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, today we pray that you would encourage them to act on that faith, to act on that gift of salvation that only you can give through your Son. So God, no matter where we are in life today, whether we've been a believer for 30 years or one year or one minute, we pray that you would encourage us today to act on that statement, on that principle, on that truth that Jesus is God. We love you so much and all of God's people said, amen. You can stand to your feet. That was this week's All-American Chapel Protestant Service podcast. Please tune in for next week's podcast.